I'm Abraham, number three of John Piper's five kids. Different people know my dad in different ways. Most of you probably know him as a pastor and an author. I know him as a pastor, too. Uh, he's been at Bethlehem since I was six months old. And I, I know him as an author. I've read one of his books. <laughs> it's, it's not most important to me, though, that he's an, uh, a pastor or an author. It's most important to me that he's my dad. I think to some people who only know him through his writing and his preaching, he can become a sort of, sometimes a sort of uh, disembodied idea machine. And uh, I just want to say a few things to show that to me he's, he's very real. Uh, I think I've seen a side of him that most people don't see. In fact, I'd venture to say that uh, you don't really know a guy until um, he sat next to you at the breakfast table dripping with sweat because uh, breakfast time is always right after the morning jog. And uh, he would rather eat than take an immediate shower. I know him as the man who would flip us in the air when we were babies, and uh, he did this to my brother one time in front of church. I don't know if he was um, making an analogy or not. Um, and uh, he'd swing us around on broomsticks when we were a little older. I let off, uh, let go one time to see how far I would fly, and I broke my wrist. I know him as the man who didn't take me to the doctor for four days because he and my mom said it was probably just sprained. I know him as the man who would take us to one pro baseball game a year and bring a book to. <laughs> but it wasn't sports that bored him, just, just baseball. I know him as the man who, who in his 60s played pickup soccer with us in a park's empty wading pool and fought harder to win than any of us who are half his age. I know him as the man who was disappointed with me when he caught me listening to rock and roll in secret when I was nine. It was Christian, but I don't think that mattered to him. I'm not sure if I have history just right, but I think in the 80s, drums were still of the devil. <laughs> I know my dad is the man who taught me when I was little what the word grace means by saying that I deserved a spanking, but he wasn't going to give me one. Um, this was an especially memorable lesson because it happened once. He also had plenty to teach about justice. I came home from school one time with a detention in the sixth grade, and the teacher had scrawled on it as the reason uh, kicked another student. Uh, I was surprised and pleased at how dismissively he was signing it uh, when he asked, by the way, who'd you kick? I answered, Anna. His pen stopped, and his eyes flared red, and he, his nostrils began to smoke, and he said, you kicked a girl. Some things grow in memory, like a fish that you caught a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure that um, my recollection of that moment and the punishment that followed is not exaggerated at all. <laughs> I know John Piper is the man who's going to send me to a middle school that required you to know Latin, so I had to take uh, summer school to catch up, and I was not happy with him. To my great relief, I overheard one of the teachers say that algebra is algebra, and it doesn't matter whether you teach it to the glory of God or not. I passed this juicy tidbit on to my dad and was very pleased shortly thereafter when my time at that institution was cut short. <laughs> I, I won't say I don't know how to push his buttons. 
I know John Piper is the man who sat next to me in understanding silence when I was 19 and having girl troubles. Um, at times like these, I'm sure he would have preferred to tell me to get it together and stop being a screw-up, but he never has. I know as the man who sat with me at Devani's Pizza while I told him I wasn't really into the kind of girl I should probably marry and anyone who would marry me, I probably shouldn't. And his prophetic response was, perhaps. <laughs> but what about Molly? I know him as the kind of man who did not seem at all upset when I proposed to Molly five months sooner than he told me I ought to. And I know him as the man who threw up his hands with a happy shout when Molly and I announced our surprise of a pregnancy five months after we were married. And I know him as the man who was the first person I wanted and needed to call when we went into the hospital with our next baby and discovered that she didn't have a heartbeat any, anymore. John Piper is a great man, not because he has a big church or lots of people read his books or know who he is. It's good he's a pastor, good he's a scholar, good he's an author, but it's best, for me at least, that he's a father, that he's my dad. I admire him, and I'm eager now to listen to him come and admire his own father. Before I pray and ask for the Lord's help in this, I just want to acknowledge that not only uh, is Abraham here, but I'm looking at Karsten and Benjamin and Barnabas, and uh, this is incredibly precious and rare treat to me that you'd come all this way, Karsten, <laughs> from Worthington, and Ben would take off work, and Barnabas would be here from Wheaton, and Abraham had to be here. <laughs> I love you very much. I'll say that in public so you don't have to wait 40 years to hear it. And uh, I admire you for what you're doing, and you're all fathers now, which is the most remarkable thing to me, and that's a beautiful, admirable thing for me to watch, and you're all husbands to wives that I admire. I am a rich father. Talitha, she's at school. She wanted to be here, but she had a project to give, so she'll have to watch it on the video. Let's pray. So, Father, I stand before my sons ready to talk about my father, and I feel overwhelmingly blessed and rich. Thank you for them. Thank you that they know you, that they're walking with you, that they have gifts that are devoted to you. And now I ask for help. I want to be uh, meticulously honest and I want to be helpful. And so would you put that together? May I pay uh, honest tribute to my father and may what I say prove to be edifying to the 12-year-olds who are here, the 16-year-olds who are here, the 76-year-olds and everybody all over the map to come and guide me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the title. I finally chose, and it's very significant for the content, Evangelist Bill Piper, Fundamentalist, Full of Grace and Joy. Evangelist Bill Piper, Fundamentalist, Full of Grace and Joy. I intend for the title to force a sense of incongruities and paradoxes and Ironies, I expect you to feel tension between the phrase fundamentalist 
and full of grace. I expect you to feel tensions between fundamentalist and full of joy. Underneath the identity child of God, the defining identity of my father was evangelist. Above every other identity, father, husband, evangelist, independent, fundamentalist, Baptist, evangelist. But the word evangelist is supreme under Son of God. Seems to me as I've reflected on him and other lives that I've studied that any serious attempt to be honest about analyzing and explaining anybody's life brings you into immediate contact with ironies, paradoxes, and incongruities. What I mean by irony is this definition. Incongruity between what might be expected and what actually occurs. That's the definition I got from dictionary.com. Seems to me that there are deep, basic reasons why in the study of any human's life, any Christian's life especially, you must deal with paradox. You must deal with irony and incongruity. The basic reason for why all Christian biography must encounter incongruity and paradox is because that's the meaning of being a Christian. You are saved, and you are not yet saved. Ephesians 2.8, Romans 13.11. We are pure in Christ. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. That's the epitome of irony, to tell an unleavened lump of dough, clean out the old leaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and everything on the earth belongs to us. If you're not a paradox, you're not saved. As I've pondered my father's life, I have found him to be a very paradoxical person. He's Christian. He's human. Does it not seem strange and incongruous? Maybe not a real incongruity, you judge. That a blood earnest, soul winner who hammered away at the temptations of the world and the dangers of the flesh, should celebrate the body of his wife with a poem like this. Her hair is like an auburn sea, wind-whipped, waved, mysterious. Her forehead, like a wall of pearl, stands majestic, proud, serene. Her wide-set eyes are like clear, sparkling, hazel-green pools, calm, compassionate, penetrating. Her fine, chiseled nose stands firmly between 
cheeks that are fair like pillows of down. Her mouth is soft, pleasant, ruby rich. Her skin is like the feathers of a dove. Her breasts are like rose-tipped apples of ivory, and her belly is like an ocean wave, smooth and restful. Her legs are like pillars of granite, strong and firm, and her feet like those of a deer, swift and beautiful. Her breath is like sweet nectar, her kisses like perfumed flowers, and her love like paradise, written in his sixties. Perhaps I shouldn't be surprised that Bob Jones University should produce soul winners who write like the Song of Solomon. (laughs) Maybe the incongruity is just biblical faithfulness. But almost everywhere I turn in my father's life, I find paradoxes. He was a Christian. He lived with other Christians who created corporate paradoxes. Does it seem strange to you? Incongruous. Perhaps not a real one. You decide. That the most fundamentalistic, separatistic, worldliness-renouncing school in America, Bob Jones University, where my father graduated in 1942, should have as part of their commencement celebration in those days, every year, the performance of As You Like It, 1939, Romeo and Juliet, 1940, both written by William Shakespeare, who in his own day ridiculed the Puritans and whose Globe Theater they demolished in in 1644. Isn't it strange? That 300 years can turn worldliness into a delightful comedy, as the Bob Jones brochure says. So, whether personal or corporate, my father's life is permeated with paradoxes. And under the title, Evangelist Bill Piper, fundamentalist, full of grace and joy, I want to capture some of them. And give you hope in the grace of God through the gospel of Christ. William Solomon Hottle Piper, named after a not well-known but significant biblical expositor, William Hottle, was born January 8, 1919, third and youngest son of Elmer and Emma Piper. His father had been a machinist. He knew it because he was missing a finger. It's like that. So I remember about my granddad. granddad. He's missing a finger until he was saved. And then he became a self-taught Bible student and the pastor of West Wyoming non-sectarian church, as we call. I have a picture of him laying the cornerstone. My father told me that he would not have been surprised if his father could have recited the entire New Testament from memory. Probably an overstatement, but making a point. Namely, his father counted the Bible as supremely valuable and gave himself to it. My father 
counted the Bible as supremely valuable. I count the Bible as supremely valuable, and therefore it runs in the family so far, and I praise God for it. His upbringing was old-fashioned, no-nonsense, and strict. Elmer, Harold, Bill, he gives a glimpse like this. My father, if you wonder where I'm getting these quotes, got scads of tapes, CDs now there, and I've got seven of his books, collections of sermons. So everything I quote from him is, if, I'll, if it's from memory, I'll tell you. Otherwise, it's straight out of, out of things that he said or wrote that are recorded or written. He wrote, Behavioristic psychologists teach that temper tantrums and defiant attitudes are normal and healthy. To curb them is dangerous. If you discipline the child, you will develop within him inhibitions and warp his personality. Well, I'm glad I had a father who believed otherwise. I got warped a good many times. <laughs> but it wasn't my personality. Oh, yes. We had plenty of counseling sessions, but generally he did all the talking. And when he was finished, I said, yes, sir. Old-fashioned, indeed it was, scriptural, absolutely, right to the letter. I was reared in a family with three boys. To this day, I can hear some of the neighbors in the church saying, Brother Piper, you're just too hard on your boys. Nevertheless, all three are following Christ. And two of them are Baptist preachers. There was no doing as you please in our home. My father believed he was responsible for the behavior of his children, and as long as we were under his roof, we were expected to obey. Here's the way he narrates his early conversion. That children can be saved, I know from my own experience. I have a brother who was saved at the age of seven, and another gave his heart to Christ when he was eight. I received Christ as my Savior when I was a boy of six, certainly there were many things I did not know, nor need to know. I knew enough to be saved. I knew I was sinful, needed a Savior. I knew that Christ was the Savior I needed. I knew that I would believe, if I would believe on Him and confess Him as my Savior, He would save me. That's all I needed to know, and all any child needs to know to be saved. I trusted Christ, and He saved me. The most decisive event, as I judge it, in reading and thinking and listening of his young life was his uh, call to the ministry. Uh, happened when he was 15, and it went like this. Let's put the slide up while I narrate this so you can see what he looked like. This is the closest I could get. This is a year before I'm talking about. Okay, it's 33, he's 14 in that picture, and he's 15 when this story that he narrates happens. I can vividly recall the thrills that accompanied the delivery of my first gospel sermon. I was 15 years of age and had just surrendered my life fully to the will and the service of Christ. The young people of our community had joined together to promote a citywide revival and had invited a well-known evangelist. For the Saturday night service, the evangelist decided to turn over the entire service to the young people. For some reason, I was asked to bring the message and to give the invitation. I had been reared in a Baptist parsonage all my life. I had heard great preaching, but I had never tried to do it myself. This was to be my first attempt. I didn't know how, but I tried. 
My heart was filled with zeal, and I wanted to do my best for the Lord. The big night came for my message. I had selected some thoughts on about a half a dozen gospel tracts. At the time of the sermon, I spread these tracts all over the pulpit, and I simply preached from one tract to the next. I don't recall a thing I said. It probably was a poor sermon. But the thing that mattered... Now, pause here. My father told me this probably a half a dozen times in his life. And at this point, I think every time he cried, he would tear up. Because this was huge to him. It was just huge what happened here. But the thing that mattered was that when I gave the invitation to receive Christ, ten precious souls left their seats and came weeping to an improvised altar and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. The thrill came to me then and still is with me many years later. I knew that Jesus had walked on water, but... I felt as I left the building that night, I was walking on air. Believe me, I was on cloud nine. And better still, I've never come down. What thrilled me most was the sudden realization that I had immeasurable power at my disposal. That the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, was willing to speak through me in such a way as to touch other lives and transform them and change their destinies. I never dreamed such a thrill was possible for me. I had not known such power was at my disposal. I said then, God, let me know this power the rest of my life. Let me be so yielded to thee that I'll never cease to know the thrill and joy of winning others to Christ. And I can say with honesty, I am just as excited right now. This book was written, from which I'm quoting, in 1980, 46 years later. I am just as excited right now about the soul-winning power of the gospel of God as I was when I was 15. Young people... Believe me, this is my father talking. Young people, believe me, the greatest thrill you'll ever have this side of heaven is the thrill of leading another precious soul to Christ. So in his yearbook, let's put that picture up. I don't know if you can read this. There he is in the left-hand corner with the big hair. Looks like Elvis Presley. Um... Over there on the side, under William Piper, I don't know if you can read it, you get this line. His hope, he wants to be an evangelistic preacher, printed in his yearbook, his senior year of high school, and he never, ever turned back. Now, to give you a flavor of the world in which he grew up, the ethos of the Christian church, and the difference between then and now, take note of this. He and his brother, Elmer, had a radio program the last two years of high school. On WRW, Reading, Pennsylvania, secular radio station, called Bill and L, the Gospel Songsters. They sang, 
and they preached, and their, their theme song was called Wonderful Peace. And to let you feel the unbelievableness of this, I want you to see the brothers singing it in their 70s. Precious hiding place, precious hiding place, in the shelter of his love, not a doubt or fear, since my Lord is near, and I'm That was a theme song of their teenage radio program. That's incredible. Would anybody listen to that? I mean, can you picture Alex and Brett Harris singing that song? (laughs) Now that causes me to reflect on the world in which my daddy grew up. That that song would be the theme song of a 16 and 17 year old with a radio program in Reading, Pennsylvania in the 1930s. Noelle, when I told her about this, she said, she pointed out, well, you, you, you remember, don't you? Adolescence hadn't been created yet. There was no such thing as a vast teenage culture in the 1930s. Frank Sinatra was born four years before my father and was the first teenage idol. The word teenager did not occur in the English language until 1941. The overlap between what parents enjoyed and what teenagers enjoyed was much fuller in the 1930s than it is today. The implication of that being the theme song of a WRW secular radio station led by teenagers is not as paradoxical when you realize the world we live in didn't exist. There was no youth culture dominating the world like there is today. My father grew up much more quickly than I did. He skipped a good bit of what is usually called the wasted years of adolescence He married, he graduated with uh, my mother, Ruth Eulalia Moan. There she is, second one down on the left. And her line across the page, showing that they'd already made a profound commitment to each other, I think, reads, she intends to take up evangelistic work. Indeed, she did in the most remarkable way. So after graduation... My father spent a year or so at uh, traveling with the Student League of Nations and studied at the John A. Davis Memorial Bible School in Binghamton, New York. And then, on May 26, 1938, he and his brother Elmer, who almost did everything together, got married together. Same, same ceremony. Father on the right, Elmer on the left. My mother's name is Ruth. Elmer's wife's name is Naomi. They married Ruth and Naomi. (laughs) My father's middle name is Solomon, and Elmer's middle name is David. So Elmer and David, I mean Solomon and David, married Ruth and Naomi. 
and they love to talk about that. I saw an interview of them the other day that I have on a DVD in which my father said, no smile on his face, no snicker from either one of them. We have never had a disagreement. Another overstatement probably, but Elmer and Bill were extraordinary friends. They moved to Cleveland, Tennessee when they got married in 1930. They they were 19 years old, both of them. And you can see they they skipped adolescence at age 20. I, I didn't know whether I could get married at all. And here they are, married, moving, ready to set up house at age 19. They moved to Cleveland, Tennessee. Bob Jones College was there, having moved there from Panama City, Florida, where it was founded in 1927. Ruth and Bill enrolled in Bob Jones College. My father was an average student. I have his grades from the last three years of his college. Bunch of C minuses and B minuses. A in his Bible courses, and the rest of them were not so good. An unbelievably gifted speaker and starred in several Shakespearean plays. Developed a deep admiration for Dr. Bob Jones Sr. and quoted him with admiration the rest of his life. He never belittled Bob Jones University and the education he got there. When the time came eventually for cutting ties, it was a deeply painful thing. Graduated in 1942, entered full-time evangelism. My sister Beverly was born in 1943. I was born in 46. Bob Jones College moved and became Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. We moved. I was six months old. We moved with them. That's where I grew up, Greenville, South Carolina, because we were right across the street from Bob Jones University, because Daddy was on the board of Bob Jones University, the youngest person on the board appointed to that point in its, in its history. 1952, the university awarded him and Elmer doctorate, Doctor of Divinity degrees in recognition of the impact of their ministry on the churches in America. Over the next decades, my father preached in all 50 states, six or eight foreign Countries led 1,250 evangelistic crusades, mainly in churches, some citywide, recorded 30,000 professions of faith and 150,000 rededications, published seven books of sermons. The personal toll that it took on him to be that kind of evangelist and on my mother was extraordinary. What keeps you going? For 50 years, leaving and leaving and leaving and leaving. What keeps you going? I'll tell you what kept him going. No, he'll tell you what kept him going. This is from a sermon called Stones Out of the Rubbish. As an evangelist, my work necessarily keeps me away from my sweet wife and children much of the time. Some have asked me, How can you endure being away from them? Why don't you get a church and settle down? And there's but one answer. When I was a boy of 15, I sold out to the will of God. His will since that day has been the supreme passion of my life. There have been failures, mistakes, sins since then, but his blessed will has remained more important to me than family, home, friends, God called me to be an evangelist. I said, Lord, this will mean homesickness 
separation from loved ones, loneliness, sacrifice. But nevertheless, if that is your will, I will let down the net. The blessings he has given have far exceeded anything I dreamed nor could contain. The fruit I have seen has repaid me a million times over for whatever sacrifices I have made. My father was not your typical evangelist. He was doctrinally driven, Bible-saturated. When he preached to save sinners, he explained doctrine. One outline contained in his notes would be a sermon like this. It's got seven points. One, Christ is our redemption. Two, Christ is our propitiation. Three, Christ is our righteousness. Four, Christ is our sanctification. Five, Christ is our example. Six, Christ is our expectation. Seven, Christ is our completeness. That would be the way he preached evangelistically. Explain those doctrines to people. He believed that the best way to call for repentance and faith was to unpack the glories of Christ in the gospel, by which he meant unpacking doctrine. He was the most Bible-saturated preacher I have ever heard in my life. When he took up the reality of the new birth, for example, he was full of the Bible. Here's what I remember most about my father's preaching. The relentless onrush of the Bible spilling over from his mind and heart. Now, first of all, then, let me show you that it's a scriptural terminology. Born again. Let's begin with the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which are born, not of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. See, then you turn to the third chapter, and you have Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and saying, Nicodemus, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can these things be when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus said, Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Then you turn to the book of James in chapter 1, verse 18. James says, by his own will begat he us with the word of truth. The word begat here means born. You turn to the apostle Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing you purified your souls in obeying the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Then you turn to the gospel, the epistles of John. And John says in 1 John 5, 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And in verse 4 he says, Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. Oh, how we need to realize tonight that the word born again is a biblical term. And that's all I wanted to do in giving you these verses. 
to show you that it's a biblical message. My father loved the Bible, full of the Bible, soaked his sermons with the Bible, and God honored him with tens of thousands of conversions in his preaching. In 1957, something happened that broke his heart, changed the scope of his relationships. I don't know all the details. I know some. I'll spare you some. I just know that in 1957, in Wisconsin, in a meeting, he wrote across the top of one of his little note sheets that I have, called Bob Jones University today and resigned from the board of the school. I was 11. Before that happened, I had gone over to the campus and watched soccer games. I had gone and seen Richard III. They made movies back then in the 50s that I saw a spear go in a man's stomach and out his back in a Bob Jones movie. And how did they do that? You know, it was a remarkable. I was there and after 1957, never again. There was a cleavage that happened between my father and the school that ended the relationship almost. It was 1957. You remember what happened in 57. In May 15 of 1957, Billy Graham began to preach in Madison Square Garden in New York City. And he preached every night for 16 weeks. Nothing like that had happened in American uh, evangelism before. Many of the supporters of the crusade were not evangelical, which created a blurring of the lines of separatism. And Bob Jones took one stance of renouncing Billy Graham's approach, and my father couldn't go with them. And the relationship was over. To me, it's one of those great ironies that in the end, uh, the school that nurtured him, shaped him, and that he loved to the end of his days, uh, he was exiled from it. Until near the end, Bob Jones III reached out, this is just a few years ago, to my dad, and there was a very sweet reconciliation, for which I am deeply, deeply thankful to Bob Jones III and thankful to my, my father. 1974, my mother was killed in a bus accident in Israel. My father was seriously injured. We nursed him back to health. Took a month off school in order to tape the wounds shut on his back each day until they were closed. He'd been married 36 years to my mother. And then a year later, God gave him another wife, Lavon Nally. I performed the wedding ceremony for my father and my stepmother in December 1975. The effect on my, of my mother's death upon my father and, and, and that marriage on our relationship was profound. It took my father one more step away from closeness to me. 
Levon was a southern lady with deep roots in family and place. They loved each other very deeply. That poem I read you was to her. In the 28 years of their marriage, she never came to Minneapolis. Never visited my church. My father came twice in 28 years. So we only saw each other once a year or so, and the relationship with them was cordial, uh, but not deep. It never felt much like family, the new family into which he had, had married. So it felt like my father had been drawn into an intimacy that was no longer focused on the family he fathered, but the new relationship that he had with Levon and, and the place of Easley, South Carolina. My relationship with my father had always been one of admiration and respect and tremendous enjoyment when we played together or fished. I loved it. But we never talked much about personal things. And with the death of my mother and the movement of my father's heart toward a new world of relationships, the distance that I felt grew even greater. It never changed my basic feelings about him or for him. Admiration, affection, tremendous affection. In fact, one of the biggest emotions I think I felt from my father from 74 on was compassion. First, the loss of my mother and the end of a 36-year marriage and the pain that I watched there. And, and then second, the sacrifices that he made for evangelism his whole life long made me want to just rise up and bless him and, and affirm him and encourage him because of those sacrifices that he Made, And then thirdly, because of his increasing dementia in the last five years or so. My emotional default reaction was never resentment. Because he wasn't home enough. My reaction has always been, I love him. I'm thankful for him. I admire him. I esteem his work. I stand in awe of his fruitfulness and his faithfulness through so many years doing one hard thing after the other. I always felt totally supported by my father. I always felt loved by my father. I always felt admired by my father. He spoke well of me. He never put me down. He never... I was going to say he never called me names. Well, he, he thought I was crazy a couple of times. He thought I was crazy, and he told me so, for leaving Bethel College and my position as associate professor to become a pastor. Wrote a long letter of the litany of horrors I was about to encounter. <laughs> and saying, with no small passion, you are John. I prayed that you would be Peter, but you're John, Stephen. 
You're not Peter. And I've been in 1,000 churches, and I would spare you this. That's the way he talked to me. In a long letter. I didn't save it. I'm not sure where it is. I wish I had saved it. I, I prayed long over that, and I, in 1980, became the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and my father immediately became totally supportive and just said, I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so it's always been one of support and love and admiration. During the years after my mother's death and my father's increasing inability to travel, God did an amazing thing for him. What do old evangelists do when they can't travel anymore? God gave him a ministry called Rod of God Ministries, which he did not plan. He simply wrote a 32-page correspondence course for ordinary folks. And over the next 10 years... Tens of thousands of people were taking this correspondence course in Asia and Africa. And a ministry was born. You can go to the website today, www.rogma.com, and you'll read the history, legacy of my dad, and it carries on under leadership that he put in place. God gave him that, and it was such a gift because that meant he was able to, to teach into a microphone, and to write and degrade papers into his mid-80s. What a gift of God to a non-traveling evangelist. Only in the last couple of years was his memory so impaired that he couldn't serve that way. Levon, his wife, died August 4, 2003. And after a brief stay in Anderson, South Carolina, near his church, and I publicly thank God for Oakwood Baptist Church in Anderson for loving my dad so well in Anderson, but he couldn't stay in the independent living situation. And so we brought him, my sister and I, to Shepherd's Care in Greenville, owned and operated by Bob Jones University. And we both looked at each other knowing this would be the last place that he would live and simply gave thanks for an unbelievably providentially sweet homecoming to the fundamentalistic bastion which had shaped him so profoundly so many years before. In God's mercy, his final days were brief and the Lord took him March 6th last year. My father's identity after evangelist was fundamentalist. By his own self-designation, and it is not a term of dishonor. In the first decade of the 20th century, liberalism was gaining a foothold in most denominations. The common word for liberals in those days was modernists. That meant there were people who, because of their understanding of modern science, 
certain essentials of the faith were simply not believable anymore. Virgin birth, miracles of Jesus, substitutionary atonement, inspiration of the Bible. These things cannot be, in the modern world, embraced. They must be demythologized in some way so that we can apply them in some vague spiritual way. But as far as being taken literally, modern people know better. And so they were called modernists. My father defines modernism this way. Quote, by modernists, we mean ministers who deny the truth concerning Jesus Christ, his miraculous conception, his absolute deity, his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind, his bodily resurrection, his personal visible return to this earth. Modernists also deny the need of regeneration by the Holy Spirit and the fact of a literal hell. In other words, these days into which my father was born, early days of the 20th century, were days of a fundamentalist modernist controversy. And the battle was mainly over fundamental doctrines, the basic Orthodox Christian faith. The fundamentals were were published. The four-volume book, Fundamentals, were published two years before my father was born. J. Gresham Machen four years after my father was born, published a book not entitled Fundamentalism and Liberalism, but Christianity and Liberalism, clearly signaling liberalism is not Christianity, which it isn't in his view and my father's and mine. Two years Before he was born, these fundamentals came out. Harry Emerson Fosick, 1922, fired the shot across the bow of the boat church and asked, shall the fundamentalists win? A very liberal pastor about a quarter of a mile from here preached a sermon a few years ago called, Have the Fundamentalists Won? And he was referring to people like me. And I took him out to lunch. And at the end of the lunch, I said, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian because of what he had denied at Baker Square. And he was very indignant about that because he's pastor of the biggest congregational church in the state, probably, and, and uh, said, my, my church is the most liberal church in the most liberal denomination in America. So my father dealt with that from his earliest day. It was titanic. You may not be able to feel it. He wrote, Christianity is in the throes of a gigantic conflict with the enemies of the Lord. The followers of Satan have shown their colors and the faith is being blatantly denied and rejected. Corruption and disintegration have begun in a dozen denominations where the enemy has spread his deadly poison. The breach between modernism and fundamentalism keep getting wider and wider. The faith once for all delivered to the saints has been shunned in favor of bloodless faith that glorifies man, denies the depravity rejects the absolute authority of the Bible and the deity of Jesus Christ. By the time my father was 10, almost everybody agreed the modernists had won. That is, 
all the mainline denominations were in their control. Then the question became, how do Christians, that is, orthodox, historic Christians, relate to those churches and that leadership? And the meaning of the word fundamentalism altered. Up until then, fundamentalism meant historic, orthodox Christianity. G. J. Gresham Machen, Bill Piper. But when the decisions had to be made, stay, go, associate with, don't associate with, one band in that larger band of historic Orthodox Christians became more separatistic. And that's the way we think about fundamentalism today, the Bob Jones universities of the world. My father embraced that move. He was defined by that move up to a point. Enter paradoxes. For him, the heart of fundamentalism was true doctrine. His passion was evangelism. Saving, perishing people from hell. He really believed in hell. Changes everything if you believe in hell. Everything. And he did. By leading them to a divine, divine deity of Christ, Savior, substitutionary atonement, faithfully recorded in the Bible, inspiration of the word, having done miracles, the miraculous, who will come again to judge the quick and the dead, second coming bodily. Everything in my father's ministry is destroyed if liberalism is true. If modernism is true, that these fundamental doctrines are not so. For evangelism, he was a fighter. I hope you don't scoff at fundamentalism. Listen to what he said. Though fundamentalists do not agree upon every point of doctrine, they are definitely agreed upon the essential elements of the Christian faith. The total depravity of man, the absolute deity of Christ, the vicarious substitutionary atonement for sin through the blood of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the need for the new birth, and the blessed return of Christ to earth. That was my father's message. It was his life. Those truths right there. I hope they're yours. Another dimension of fundamentalism besides the doctrine, another dimension that, that he embraced besides the doctrine was authoritative preaching, willing to name evil and defend truth. Quote, too many present-day pulpiteers are soft-peddling the gospel. Even many who are robed in the vestments of fundamentalism are void of a semblance of holy boldness in their preaching. 
They handle sin with kid gloves, avoid great issues, and shrink from declaring cardinal doctrines. Pussyfooters in the pulpit. What a tragedy. They are a blight to the church and a blockade to the Holy Spirit's blessing. God wants trumpets in the pulpit, not violins. Trumpets that sound the reveille and warn of judgment to come. The tabooing of negative preaching has taken the fire and brimstone out of the pulpit, dried the tears of repentance, kept the altars empty. I would not for a moment minimize the effectiveness of positive proclamation of the glorious transforming gospel. Of Christ. It is my contention, however, that the sledgehammer preachers of yesterday were not entirely wrong and that a balanced middle of the road position must be taken. And a third piece of the fundamentalist vision that he embraced was the doctrine of separation, not just from false doctrine, but from all forms of worldliness. Anything that would weaken or cloud or obscure the boldness and the spiritual power of your testimony for Jesus. Quote, Every Christian who indulges in the sinful pleasures of this world is a compromiser and a stumbling block. No dancing, theater-going, card-playing, gambling Christian can hope to be a soul winner. Or have a testimony for God. If men see this world in you, you will never point them to the next. Hmm. I grew up in a home where it was assumed we wouldn't smoke, we wouldn't drink, we wouldn't gamble, we wouldn't play cards, we wouldn't dance, and we wouldn't go to movies. We were fundamentalists. So why, Piper, didn't you kick against this growing up? I have never, not as a teenager, a college student, a seminary student, a teacher or pastor, ever thought ill of my parents for these standards. Ever. When I was in my early 20s, I went to Fuller Seminary which was New Evangelical, they call it in those days, which meant it wasn't fundamentalist. And I was indignant when certain young faculty members were cynical and snide and sarcastic about fundamentalism. They sounded to me like adolescents who were angry with their parents and their backgrounds, and could never seem to grow up. I could name them. You wouldn't know the names. They, they didn't go very far. When, you, when you're a mean-spirited, angry young man, you don't lead people very well. I never felt that way about my parents. Agree or disagree wasn't the issue. I just never felt resentful about it. Why? I'm kind of normal. I just struggled with a lot of sins. Why? I think I know the answer. My mother and my father were the happiest people I have ever known. It strikes me as an incongruity and a, or this strikes many as an incongruity and a paradox. I think it's the key to their family life. And I think it's a key to their influence. 
my father's power. Fundamentalist forcefulness in the pulpit, hammering away at sin, calling evil, evil. Fundamentalist vision of the razor-sharp edge of truth. That's a phrase from one of my father's sermons. The razor-sharp edge of truth. Fundamentalist standards that move from the Ten Commandments down to dancing and card playing. All of that was enveloped in a world of joy and freedom. 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 Fundamentalistic freedom. Yes. I'll illustrate. Seventh grade. Ms. Adams' homeroom. All we did was do diagram sentences. That's all I remember. Diagram sentences. I remember one other thing. We won the award for attendance of Greenville Junior High School. And the prize for the award of best attending homeroom was you all get to go to a movie during school at Carolina Theater, downtown Greenville, Main Street. My heart just... So I went home. And I said to my mother, the whole class is going to go to a movie. What should I do? And my mother said, you do what you think is right. And I went. Considered all the, all the angles on this. I don't remember the movie. It was a Western. That's all I remember. First time I was in a theater, I felt dirty. I did. That's the way I was brought up. Eighth grade, next year, phone rings one evening, and I don't remember her name. She was pretty. I remember that. <laughs> this is Sadie Hawkins' deal, and she asked me to go to a dance. I've never been to a dance. To this day, I've never danced. Don't know how to dance. I do run on my running machine at home, and sometimes, if you saw me, you'd think I was dancing. Maybe I am dancing. Depends, depends on which sermons I'm listening to. I said, uh, I don't dance. This is really awkward. I don't dance. She said, we don't have to dance. We can just sit and watch. I said, uh, just a minute. Put the phone down. I, I, I went to my mother. You say, why would you go to your dad? My dad wasn't home. He was never home. Right? Mama just spoke for him. I said, Mama, what, what am I going to do? And she said, Johnny, you do what you think is right. And as I turned to go back, not knowing what I was going to do, she said, just a minute. She checked the calendar. And she said, we're not in town that day. I said, oh, yes. Oh, Relief. I'm sorry. We're not in town. Okay. And that was the end. I never got, I never got another invitation like that again. What was my mother doing? She was saying, we have standards, son. 
but they have to come from the inside. If they don't come from the inside, they're worthless. You're old enough on these issues, you own this or you don't. That's what I meant by freedom. When my parents said, do what you think is right, they weren't foolish relativists, whatever. They were wise fundamentalists. And soon I was old enough to talk to my daddy about these things. Daddy, why, why is there a split between you and, and these other fundamentalists? And one thing I remember he said every time we talked about that, sometimes he'd just volunteer it. He brought up Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. And you may think, as hard-driving as my father was in his preaching, that that would be an anomaly. Maybe it is. But he simply didn't see it where he thought he needed to see it. Truth, no love. And he thought, got to be both. And in this home, I felt both. Truth was absolutely essential. And I was enveloped in a a world of love and joy and grace. Why would I want to leave? Why would I want to rebel? Why would I want to criticize? I was so at home. He liked to joke about the, the Greek word there. It's a verb. He used to say, truthing in love. We'd be truthing in love. Already in the 1940s, there had emerged in my father's preaching and teaching a warning toward the dangers of fundamentalism. It became very strong. The paradoxes became more intense. For the careless listener to these sermons or the reading of these sermons, they would think this man is abandoning ship. And a lot of people thought he had abandoned ship. My father would have never said he abandoned the ship of fundamentalism. I don't think he abandoned the ship of fundamentalism entirely. Here's what he wrote. Some professing Christians, often those who boast of their fundamentalism, are given to a, a grievous censoriousness and critical attitude toward everything and everybody. As one man I knew said, some people are born in the objective case and the contrary gender and the bilious mood. He used to use that from my sister and me a lot. You're born in the objective case and the contrary gender and the bilious mood. For one to profess to know Christ and have a real religion and at the same time to manifest a sour, critical, negative attitude is disgusting and abhorrent even to the ungodly. Certain, certainly anyone with such an unsavory nature could never hope to be a saver of life unto life. He was an evangelist. They were going to kill evangelism. Then there's this amazing passage from my father that folds the, crit the critique of fundamentalism in with much wider concerns so you can feel how it fits. It, it's not 
He's not on a pony here trying to just dig at his tradition. You can hear it being folded in to the scope of his burden. So I want you to hear his heart. This is one of the most sweeping descriptions or expressions of my father's burden that I know of. I'll try to do it justice. When a backslidden Christian confesses his waywardness and returns to God, when worldly Christians stop their smoking and drinking and dancing and card playing and show going and heed again the message of separation, when Pharisaic negative religionists who boast loudly of what they do not do, forsake their contemptuous pride and covetousness and carnality and return again to their first love, when slothful, sleepy, negligent Christians are filled with the Spirit and feel again the thrill of their salvation, when stagnant fundamentalism is replaced by aggressive evangelism, when anemic sermons are read again with the blood of Jesus, when the average church ceases to be merely a center of social interest and becomes again a source of spiritual influence, does more praying, less playing, more fasting, less feasting, showers of revival will fall and blessing will come to America again. You feel the scope of his indictment and longing. He said, there's a world of difference between separation and consecration. This is what my mother was doing when she said, do what you think is right, Johnny. The issue in this family, Johnny, is not to keep separation rules, but to have consecrated hearts. That's the issue in this family. Whether you go or not go, not the main issue. What's your heart say, Johnny? Daddy writes, I have seen many Christians who are separated, but far from consecrated. They boast pharisaically of what they do not do and fail to see that they are doing almost nothing for God. Consecrated Christians are Christians who are so busy serving the Lord that they have neither the time nor the taste for the things of the world. They have found their joy and their complete satisfaction in Christ. Fundamentalism ceased to be a term that my father could use for himself without profound qualification. And that didn't change for 40 years. I'm going to show you one more video clip. Get ready for this one. Here's my daddy in his 70s, Washington Avenue Baptist Church, Greenville, South Carolina, on what is real Christianity? Pretty strong words here. What is Christianity? I tried to answer that a little bit this morning. Christianity, dear friends, is not a set of rules and regulations. Christianity is not a list of dogmas. Christianity is not any creed. Christianity is not any rite or ritual like baptism or communion. 
Christianity is not a passionless purity. Christianity is not degrees of goodness. How many people do you know, for example, say, well, if you're good enough, you go to heaven. If you're bad enough, you go to hell. And many people have it fixed that way. But Christianity is not a matter of degrees of goodness. Let me quickly add also that Christianity is not even fundamentalism. Let me remind this audience that the devil is fundamental. If what you mean by fundamental is believing everything that's in the Bible, then the devil is a fundamentalist. It takes more than being just fundamental to be a Christian. Christianity is not a fighting orthodoxy or a militant orthodoxy. Some people today equate fighting some sort of militant orthodoxy for spirituality and being born again, but it's not the same. I believe you can fight for Jesus in the energy of the flesh. And I believe the devil can use you if you're not careful. To say the devil is a fundamentalist in Greenville, South Carolina, is risky talk. He was too old to care. He never cared. Well, if it's not rules, if it's not dogmas, if it's not creeds, if it's not rituals, if it's not passionless purity, if it's not degrees of goodness, and the devil himself is a fundamentalist because he agrees with all the fundamentalists, What's the heart of the matter, Daddy? That's really not hard for me to answer. I got so many quotes from so many places about what my father believed was the heart of the matter and what stamps me so profoundly. I'll just close with trying to show you where I came from, as imperfect as I represent what he stood for. The answer was the heart of the matter, Christianity, Gospel-rooted, Christ-savoring, God-glorifying joy was the heart of the matter. My father was stunned by the gospel. He exulted in the gospel. Everything in fundamentalism was secondary to the glory of Christ enjoyed in the gospel. The gospel meant salvation... And salvation meant total satisfaction in Christ. Listen. Other religions are spelled do. Christianity is spelled done. If you would be saved, you must place your trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. In him, all sin was punished and God's holiness was vindicated God is satisfied with Christ as to the perfection of his life and righteousness and as to the completeness of his work in the sinner's behalf. God's only requirement for salvation is that you too be satisfied with Christ and his work. Where did John Piper learn that? Where did I discover that delight in God is our highest duty? Before Jonathan Edwards, before C.S. Lewis, before Daniel Fuller, there was Bill Piper unsystematically, 
unapologetically and sometimes, I think, unwittingly saying God's only requirement is that you be satisfied with Christ. Long before John Piper read C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, and learned about the folly of making mud pies in the slums because he can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea, long before that, he was hearing his father talk about the cow and the barbed wire fence by the road. I've often seen a cow stick her head through a barbed wire fence to chew the stubby grass bordering the highway when behind her lay a whole pasture of grass. I have always been reminded of Christians who have not learned to completely trust Christ, <clears throat> reaching out to the world for sensual pleasure when rivers of pleasure were at their disposal in Christ. No one is denying that there are pleasures to be had in this world. That's not the point. The point is that there are other pleasures to be had in this life, pleasures so great in depth, significance, satisfaction, duration, that they far exceed the pleasures of sin. They are the pleasures to be found in the knowledge and the service of Christ. End of quote. Long before... John Piper ever read Blaise Pascal's Pensee, All Men Seek Happiness. He was absorbing from his father these truths. In the 1940s, Daddy preached this. Everyone wants to be happy. Sinners seek it in pleasure and fame and wealth and unbelief. But they seek in vain. Christians have found the answer to happiness in Christ. What are the pleasures? What are these rivers of pleasures? What are the pasture lands behind this cow nibbling at the stubby grass along the road with his head through the barbed wire fence? What are they? And my father would answer, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Quote, the devil can't make a raindrop. The devil never made a raindrop, a snowflake. He never made a baby smile or a nightingale sing. He never placed a golden sun in the western sky or filled the night with stars. Why? Because these things are not his to give. God is the creator, possessor of them all, and he lovingly shares them with us all. Any wonder my dad was a poet? Poets are people who see the indescribable glory everywhere and will not be daunted in their passions to make language its revelation. My father found reason to rejoice everywhere, like water. He had an invincible faith that all things work for good according to God's wise purpose to reveal his glory. Even in his final years of dementia, this was a gift to us. I don't know that my dad lived long enough, Don, to, to go through the irascible stage. We, we did get some reports. I never saw much of it, but I understand it. 
by and large, in his dementia, he was quite affable, which was a gift to us. He kept a journal to the end of his ability to keep a journal. It stopped in April of 2004. From the last two pages of his journal, I read this. So this was what he wrote when he could no longer write. That is, after this, there was no more memory to keep a journal. He wrote this. I'll soon be 86, but I feel strong. And my health is good. God has been exceedingly gracious. And I am most unworthy of his matchless grace and patience. The Lord is more precious to me the older I get. In other words, the pasture lands of pleasure, the rivers of delights, that the cow was head through the fence eating the stubbly grass along the road couldn't see is not ultimately the moon or the flower. It's Christ. Every believer has in Christ, he said, all the fullness the world longs for. Christianity, therefore, far from being a dull and dreary or harsh system of rules and regulations, is gloriously free, real, victorious, happy life. That's what I felt profoundly day in and day out coming from my father. He adds this, namely that it never ends. His grace is infinite. It is a fathomless sea in glory throughout the ages to come. We who are saved will behold an endless display of the riches which we now have in Christ. And then always the evangelist, these words. I trust that you all are sharing this wealth. If not, you may simply place your faith in Christ and start reveling in the riches of God's grace. One last thing. Lest I fail to give him credit for everything he should have. He preached a very provocative sermon called Sanctifying God from Isaiah 8.13. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Sanctify the Lord. What was his answer to the question, how do we sanctify God? Thought he sanctified us. And the text says, sanctify the Lord. And he posed the question in the sermon, how do you do that? How do you esteem him and honor him and set him apart as supremely valuable? And here's the answer that he gives. And it, it was a very personal discovery, he said. I knew that God was sufficient abundantly able to supply my every need and the need of all who would trust him. But to sanctify him as such, I realized that day that I must live a contented life, a life 
fully satisfied in him alone. Or to quote the echo of that in his son's language, God is most sanctified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What an evangelist. What a fundamentalist. What a soul full of grace and joy. Thank you, Daddy. Under God, I owe you everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for my father. And I thank you for the hundreds of fathers in the room and fathers of those who are in the room and the fathers of the fathers who are in the room. I thank you for the fathers who blew it and grieve that they blew it. I thank you for the fathers who blew it and don't grieve that they blew it because all things work together for good. I pray that a legacy of pain would cease and a new day would be born. I pray that you would draw near and heal wherever there's brokenness. And I pray that those of us who had faithful fathers would keep the legacy. Give us the courage that we've heard about to do it, I pray. Give us the wisdom and sensitivity to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.